Well, good morning, church. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, this morning marks part one of a three-part series that our church is going to be teaching on, on suffering. Now, if you attended one of our quiz nights earlier on in the lockdown, you would be familiar with the Guess the Song category, which some of you cleaned up on. On the screen, I've put the fairly familiar words of a hymn, which you may know. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like billows, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, we don't really sing songs like that in church or use that kind of English anymore, but I think what is more interesting than the content of the song is the context in which it was written. It was penned by a guy named Horatio Spafford. He was an American lawyer, he lived in Chicago, and his life was anything but easy. He had five children. He lost a four-year-old son early on in family life, and then his business was ruined by the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, and then battered again by economic recession two years later. But Spafford was a Christ follower, and at the time, his family planned to travel to England to help another friend of theirs who you may have heard of, D.L. Moody, and his evangelistic mission. Spafford was delayed just before the voyage, and so he sent his wife and four remaining girls ahead of him while he stayed behind in Chicago to finish a business deal. Tragically, the trip, the ship with his wife and his children on, collided with another vessel, sank rapidly, and a few days later, as he waited eagerly for news, he received an our famous telegram from his wife saying, Saved alone. Shortly afterwards, he voyaged across the Atlantic on a subsequent trip. And when that ship came to the place believed to be where his daughters died, he wrote those famous words. There is something about the context in which those words were written that make them all the more beautiful. They stand, like a, stand out like a bright beacon of what it means to honor Jesus, what it means to suffer as a believer. And it offers us something to think about as we dive into this series. Now, some of you might be thinking, hmm, doesn't this series seem a bit misplaced? I mean, we've just worked our way through Nehemiah, a great church building foundation. As we continue onto the journey to autonomy, we found ourselves a new name, Church of the City. Shouldn't we be focusing on missions or something a bit more triumphant? Church, I don't think there is anything more triumphant than Christ followers glorifying God in the furnace of suffering, nor anything more reflective of discipleship to Jesus than suffering will. So why teach on suffering? Is our theology, theology of suffering really a tenet of discipleship? Yes, yes it is. As a growing church, we really want the right foundations and we really want to learn to suffer well. At Church, of the, at church for the City, we really wanna be cultivating an environment within church where we can be human on earth in a broken world. We don't want to teach or operate as a community in a way that denies the reality of suffering and sin and suggests that somehow our experiences of pain or failure take away from the glory of God. We want to proclaim and live out the belief that God's glory works itself out in the trials and sufferings of humankind, that brokenness, this side of heaven, is part of our existence and that God is always at work in the mess. This allergy to difficulty and struggle is not mature Christianity at all. It traps us into a fallacy of inauthenticity and performance. And that will be a very real barrier to you discovering the grace of God in your life. 
and walking in real joy in a broken community around you. Church, we really need to learn how to suffer well, to honor Jesus, to love each other well in hardships, and to be a witness to the world of our great hope. So what do we consider to be suffering? If you have listened so far and you've thought to yourself, hmm, you know what, I've never faced any major trial or calamity. I've never been diagnosed with cancer or chronic illness. I'm just an ordinary human getting through the ordinary misery of everyday lockdown life and looking forward to being able to sneeze in public without someone thinking that I've got the plague. Church, please don't check out. Scripture doesn't say when you suffer. It doesn't say if you suffer. It says when you suffer. I'll say that again. Scripture doesn't say if you suffer. It says when you suffer. Rejoice. Nobody is exempt. Suffering can include really serious experiences like poverty and tragedy and illness and infertility and disability and even death. But it can also include unemployment and loneliness and poor mental health and unanswered prayer and seasons of exhaustion and isolation. In fact, for some of you, lockdowns are excruciatingly lonely, awful experiences. Scripture also includes in suffering an experience of hardship because of your faith in the gospel. Now, it's really important as we try and get a solid foundation on what it means to suffer well, that we get a handle on the myths or the incomplete assumptions that we believe about suffering. And we're gonna go through five of those this morning. Now, the problem with these statements is not that they're untrue necessarily. It's just that they're not always true. They're partial truths, which sometimes we believe absolutely. And that's when things can get fairly slippery for us. So let's dive in. Myth number one that we assume incompletely. Suffering is always from, sa from Satan. So number one, suffering is always from Satan. Scripture does offer us references to instances where sin or suffering is sometimes a result of the work of Satan. So in Luke 13, 11, a woman who had suffered as a cripple because of an evil spirit. Or Acts 10, 38, Jesus went around healing those that had suffered because of the oppression of the devil. But this is not always true. In other words, suffering is not always from Satan. We know that sometimes suffering is attributable to our own sin and choice. So that leads us on to an incomplete assumption or myth number two, that suffering is always the result of sin. Now, as believers, we understand that the experience of suffering is a result of the fall. It's the result of sin entering the world in the Garden of Eden. Garden, Garden of Eden, Eden. Um, and we also understand that experiences of suffering can be the result of general human choices and then specific human choices. So let's look at this in scripture. In Proverbs 13, 20, it says, a companion of fools get into trouble. Or 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, that is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. So in a general sense, if you like me may have an allergy to exercise and a moderate diet, that may render one to being more vulnerable to disease. Or chronic pollution may make us more vulnerable to natural disasters and climate events. But suffering doesn't only result from general sinful choices. It can result from certain specific sinful choices as well. So, for example, if you drive at 200 kilometers an hour, that may result in you wrapping your car around a tree. Or drinking and driving can cause enormous tragedy for you or for someone else. And these ideas sound like common sense. 
but you'd be mistaken to think that they are the only source of suffering. And so a general attribution of suffering to sin is sometimes true, but incomplete. And we're going to see in a minute that sometimes suffering is actively instigated or actively permitted by God himself. Let's sidestep these sources of suffering for a minute and consider another incomplete assumption around suffering. And that's myth number three, that suffering is an atonement. The third myth that we sometimes believe without even realizing it is this idea that the experiences of suffering somehow make us more acceptable to God, that they serve to purify us, that they serve as an atonement for all the bad things we've done. And if we can just persevere hard, persevere hard enough or long enough, then somehow our debt to God will be owed. Some religious traditions and beliefs of Catholicism believe in this idea called purgatory. It's believed to be this place between heaven and hell, and it serves as a temporary punishment of sin. Now, some people believe that, in fact, we would suffer this side of heaven on earth, and that disease and, and, and poverty and persecution are experiences of purgatory this side of heaven. Church, this is a dangerous belief to have. Why? Because it defies grace. It says that the all-sufficiency of Jesus and his payment of our sin is not enough. It says, by all means, go ahead and believe in Jesus, but at the end of the day, you must pay for your sin yourself. And one such way is to suffer. Now, maybe your beliefs around um, suffering as atonement are not as dogmatic as that. But what about the slippery self-righteousness that comes from experiences of self-suffering? That in tricky moments, we might catch ourselves thinking, oh, I hate these circumstances, but I know that God will have a great reward for me after this. Or if I can just endure this, God will give me what I've been praying for. Or maybe he'll hear my prayers more if I go through this. Church, these hopes they're not untrue. God does hear our prayers. He does reward us. He does bless us, but not because of our goodness or purity, and certainly not because we've suffered to deserve such purity. He blesses us simply because he is good and all good things come from him. Now, there are three takeaways that come from us debunking this idea that suffering is in any way a vehicle to atonement, that our endurance through something is a way to get God to love us more or to count our sin against us any less. The first one is that the beauty of grace is because it's free. The moment grace is no longer free, it's no longer grace. We need to be careful about numbing out the impact of grace by making it contingent on anything other than a free gift of Jesus. Church, our purity comes from Jesus being the perfect sacrifice who took our place, died in our stead, he picked up the tab for our sin. The fact that God doesn't count our sin against us is not because we have hard, difficult things happen to us. No, we are no more and no less loved or accepted by God when we suffer. Our acceptance is a consequence of undeserved forgiveness by a holy and just God. Not because what, have we, what we have done or endured or suffered through but by what Christ has done. So that's take home number one. The beauty of grace is because it's free. The second one is that suffering changes us to be more like Jesus. 
we will read in a bit about four incredibly brave, long-suffering Jewish teenagers. They had an experience of suffering that was quite literally a brutally hot furnace. Now, if you know anything about metalwork, which I really don't, um, I think you would know that in order for metal to be purified or refined, it has to go through a certain process of being heated up and the impurities removed and the leftover metals cooled down. And this process is repeated a number of times until the metal itself is reflective. Now, we will explore later in the series the role of suffering in changing our knowledge of God, His closeness to us, its role in making us more into a mirror of Jesus to others, how it makes us reflective of Christ and our apprenticeship to Him. But it's very important to remember that the function of the furnace, the refining of our characters, is to point us to Jesus, not win His favor. It's to point us to Jesus. It's to reflect Him more. It's not to win His favor. In Romans 5 verse 3, we read, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The third take-home of this application is that it provokes us to trust in the goodness of God. It provokes us to trust in the goodness of God. It is understandable, it's completely understandable, that in periods of suffering, you may wonder, does God actually love me? Like, has he, has he forgotten about me? Does he have something against me? Why is he not hearing my prayers? Am I not good enough for him? How come he blesses all these other people and I just seem stuck with the rubbish, yuck bits of life? In Jesus, the answers to these questions are no, no, no. Why? Because God has already proven his great, enormous, life-changing love for you in Jesus on the cross. It's a bit like God gave you a million dollars when Jesus died on the cross for you. And right now you're in a bit of financial difficulty and you're asking God to give you $10. And he says no. And you don't know why. And it's very painful. But you know because you know because you know that it's not because he doesn't love and care for you. Because he has proven that beyond all explanation when he suffered and died on the cross for you. So just to recap our incomplete assumptions that we have about suffering. Number one, that suffering is always from Satan. Number two, that suffering is always a result of sin. And assumption number three, or the myth that suffering is somehow an atonement for sin. The fourth myth presents us with big questions about suffering and our theology of who we understand God to be. It says that suffering is an experience outside of the, the sovereignty of God. Suffering as an experience outside of the sovereignty of God. Scripture tells us that sometimes suffering is permitted or allowed by God. I'm going to say that again. Suffering is sometimes actively permitted or actively allowed by God. How do we reconcile this idea that a loving God allows suffering? We are going to explore some of the story um, in the story of Daniel and his mates in a, in a few minutes. I think you'll find them quite re relatable, actually. They're like modern day young Aussies. They are up and coming, fairly wealthy. They're deep thinkers. They have access to a lot of information and they're vegan. And they probs would have done CrossFit had they been around in our day. 
So we're going to dive into the scripture for this morning, which is um, in Daniel 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Did you read that? God allowed Jerusalem to be besieged and for his holy temple to be defiled by permitting Nebuchadnezzar to take sacred objects and keep them at victory as victory trophies in his own house of idols. This idea of God permitting suffering is not only evident to us in Daniel. In fact, throughout scripture, we see that suffering is sometimes actively instigated by a loving father. For example, the boils on the Egyptians or in Psalm 119, 75, scripture tells us, in your goodness, you afflicted me. Or that suffering is sometimes actively permitted. In the story of Job, Satan says, can I make Job sick? And God says, yes, but within limits. Suffering can be ordained by God. And for many people, an incomplete understanding of that idea can lead them to want nothing to do with God at all. To summarize the next little bits of the Daniel story, the king's chief of staff orders the young men of royal and noble Jewish households to be taken away from their families as captives, trained in the Babylonian history and language, and then they would enter the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. They had their identities stripped off of them, and their names were changed to famously, as we know them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, you may be familiar with the next parts of the story how they too did not see their suffering as an atoning vehicle against defilement. No, they kept themselves pure according to Jewish law by not eating the food offered to them by the king. How God gave them, in verse 17, an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of vision and dreams. And how they refused to bow down to the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar made. King Ned was so enraged that Daniel and his mates would not do this, that they refused not to serve their God, that he had them thrown into a fiery furnace. How do we reconcile this idea that they served a good, loving God, that that God loved them, that he remained sovereign, and that they suffered because their good, loving, sovereign God himself permitted the besieging of Jerusalem, their capture, and their torture? Church, this is one of the very big questions that we face as Christians. How could a good, just, loving, sovereign God allow such misery, depravity, and pain? How do we reconcile our experiences of suffering and sorrow and sickness if they fall within the active instigation and permission of a good and loving Father? It's a good question, but I want you to think about it and then flip it around and think about the corollary. Imagine for a minute that our suffering fell outside of the sovereignty of God. Imagine that our suffering fell outside of either the goodness or the sovereignty of God. For example, imagine that you prayed that you'd get promoted and you'd earned enough money to go on a wild holiday that you'd been looking forward to for years. And on this holiday, you're struck by a giant tsunami and you lose everything, all your wealth, all your health. And imagine if in that moment you cried out to God and said, what, what, what's going on? God had said to you, 
oh, I'm just, I'm just so sorry. I'm like you're nice and all, and and to be honest, in, in all honesty, I, I, I really did have the best of intentions for you, but I just didn't know that that tsunami was going to hit, and and even if I did, I, I'm just not sure that I could have done anything about it. Really, you know, free will, fallen world, Soz. Good luck. Get better soon. Thoughts and prayers. Scary. Scary. Imagine if that was our circumstance. Imagine if our suffering fell outside the bounds of God's active sovereignty. If that's true, then why pray? He can't intervene. He can't heal. If he's not sovereign enough to prevent it, he can't end it. And that means that that Roman 8.28 promise that we all hold to, that God works all things, God works all things for good, has limited applicability to us. It's not really a promise. It's some random idea that sometimes some of us get lucky on. Now, the application of this piece of scripture offers us this tension to wrap our heads around, this idea that they're two seemingly contradictory ideas, but when we hold them together, they actually give us a fuller, richer picture of what God is trying to teach us. It shows us to look to God for deliverance from the trial, and for God's power to be on display in the trial. Look at what Abednego says in verse 16. He says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us from the trial. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I love the scripture, verse 18. But even if he doesn't in the trial, even in death, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were committed to God's deliverance from their sufferings and his simultaneous deliverance in their sufferings through perseverance. Church, in our experiences of suffering, we too can boast and delight and take heart from this tension that we have the power of Christ in the resurrection to deliver us from suffering and the fellowship of Christ and his sufferings to persevere through our sufferings. Either way, God's power is on show. Either way, God is glorified. The fifth and final myth that we're going to explore today around a foundational series of suffering well is this idea that God waits for us at the end of suffering. The final myth that we tend to believe about suffering is that God somehow waits for us at the end of us, as if it's some sort of test that God throws you in the deep end, wishes you the best of luck, wishes, uh, wishes you or promises you a, a warm towel and Milo when you make it through to the other end. And again, this is a giant no. Scripture promises us that God is with us in our sufferings. He's not a silent bystander clapping us on from the sidelines and hoping we make it. No, he is with us in our sufferings. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in a conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Look what happens to Daniel's mates. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Verse 19, he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. 
and then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, they replied. We certainly did. Verse 25, Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I love the scripture. I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. It's like the best Freudian slip in the Bible. Not a son of the gods, but the son of God. Church, the fourth man was in the furnace with Daniel's mates. The fourth man was near to Daniel and his friends in their suffering. He did not flee the pain and heat of the, of the furnace, but he met them in it. The fourth man endured the suffering of his own fiery furnace of the cross, and he will meet you and forge you and refine you in the furnace of your own. The fourth man, Jesus, King of forever, will come to you in the furnace of your suffering and he will be especially near to you and he will give you the thrill and the comfort and the joy of his presence. Church, the answers to the questions of the why of suffering are found in the enduring beauty of the who, Jesus, the fourth man. I don't know where you stand with the fourth man. I don't know your pain. I don't know your suffering. I don't know your questions and your unanswered prayers. I have no answers to the questions that torment you and the confusion and the pain of some of your experiences. But I do know the fourth man, Jesus, Son of God, King of Kings, who met Daniel and his mates in the furnace of their own suffering. And I know because I know because I know that he will meet you in yours. My prayer for you is that you too can know him and say like Horatio Spafford did, to be able to look to Jesus and say, but Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, a song in the night, O my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul.